we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege we have of gathering this afternoon as the church, the Father's family, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the pearl of great value, the bride of Christ. We thank you that you've saved us into the church. We thank you that you've given us peace with God, but you thank you that you've given us one another. And we just thank you for the church. We thank you for everyone here this afternoon. We thank you for those that you've saved by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah, what a saviour. We thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. We thank you that the tomb is empty. We thank you that the work is finished. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, for your grace. And we thank you for every word of your book, the word of scripture, the word that is able to make us wise. Pray that you would grant us wisdom now by your Holy Spirit, that you open up the scriptures to us, enable us to hide your truth in our hearts. Forgive us eyes to see and ears to hear and a soft heart, we pray, to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can turn with me to the uh, Old Testament book of Ruth, I'm going to be looking over the next few weeks at three sermons from Ruth, some verses from chapter 1, from chapter 3, and from chapter 4. And uh, we're in Ruth 1, I'll read from verse 1 through to 22, although I'll pick up the exposition from verse 6. So Ruth 1 and verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, but both Marlon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night who should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Will you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We thank the Lord that he's spoken to us in the reading of his holy and inerrant word. I have... I like to read and uh, I have biographies on my shelves which I love to dip into and I have, you know, I have various political figures as well which are sometimes interesting to read but I have John Newton, Martin Lloyd-Jones by The Tomes by Ian Murray and Samuel Rutherford was one that I got relatively recently and I think one of the reasons that I like biographies is that it helps take Christian biographies, it takes the rich truths of the Bible and makes them concrete, it, it, their applications. And we, the strengths, we see strengths, we see weaknesses, we see sins and successes of Christians, not so very different from ourselves, whom God nevertheless uses wonderfully. And reading their lives helps us read ours more honestly. And in Ruth 1, verse 6, through to the end of the chapter, which I read, there is something of that same phenomenon taking place. We've been helped to see the ways of God with us as we trace them in the lives of three women who are caught up in this whirlwind of suffering and loss that has broken in, if you like me, like an avalanche upon this little family. You see, Elimelech has taken his family from the, from the land of God's blessing, the land of Israel. He's taken his family into pagan Moab in order to flee from material famine in Israel. He didn't see that the famine was God's rebuking Israel for Israel's disobedience. And so instead of Turning to God in repentance, Elimelech fled to where the grass is greener. And the last verse of the book of Judges provides the setting within which, in the period of Israel's life, Ruth, the story of Ruth, plays out. The last verse of the book of Judges describes this whole season and could be applied to Elimelech's fateful decision as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everywhere we look, we see everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Elimelech walked by sight, not by faith. And so the sojourn, the temporary residence for a season in a strange land, turned out to be ten long 
heartbreaking years of loss. Their two sons, two boys, Marlon and Chilion, they married pagan wives in disobedience to God's words. And before Elimelech could make good on his, his marvellous master plan, which was to go home, he died in Moab. And soon, tragically, his two sons join him in a Moab, in a Moab graveyard. So as we come to verse 6, Naomi is broken-hearted, she's bereft, she's mourning, she's destitute, with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth, Orpha and Ruth. And then they receive word, they receive word in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people in Judah and provided food for them. The discipline of God, that is what the famine in the land was meant to be. The discipline of God was to awaken his people and call them back to himself. We see that in, that in that story. But now he visited them in mercy and provided again their daily bread. Moab was supposed to be the place of plenty. Instead, it was the scene, for this family at least, of tragic loss and devastation. But now God has visited Israel. Naomi can stand it no longer and she wants to go back. She wants to make the journey home. And in fact, that word return is crucial to understand in chapter 1, return. It appears in almost every verse after verse 6. Verse 6, Naomi arose to return. Verse 7, they went on their way to return. Verse 8, go return both of you. Verse 10, no, we will return with you. Verse 11, but, ne but Naomi says, turn back. Verse 12, turn back. Verse 15 and 16, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Verse 22, to Naomi returned and Ruth went with her who returned from the country of Moab. So this is clearly a chapter about returning. Chapter 1 of Ruth is about returning. But the three journeys of returning for the three different women are very different and they, are, and they tell us in story form the responses to God's pleading with us. The stories of Orpah, Ruth and Naomi picture three different but common responses to the Lord, especially in his sovereign providential dealings with us, particularly when trials, hardship and suffering come. What is going to be our response? What is going to be the trajectory of our hearts? You see, and in Orpah, we tragically see the almost believer. Almost a believer. In Ruth, we see a new believer. A wonderful picture of salvation. And in Naomi, we see a backslidden believer. So we have Orpah, who is a not almost, but not a believer, Ruth, a new believer, and Naomi, a backslidden believer. Let's look at Orpah, the almost believer. Let's think about her story, first of all. Look at verses 6 and 7. These three women set out together for the land of Judah. 
They set out together for Judah. But Naomi knows that she can offer her daughters-in-law no, no prospects of improvement in their destitute circumstances should they continue with her. So she urges them to stop. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return both of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi, if you like, blesses her daughters-in-law. She invokes the name of God, Yahweh, and she seeks to send them home again to their Moabite families. She knows that their best hope of a better life lie in finding new husbands for themselves, and she knows it would be extremely unlikely, humanly speaking, that any Israelite would notice a widowed Moabite girl. In fact, later in the story, when Ruth commits herself to coming with Naomi, Naomi realises she will not be dissuaded. She didn't thank her daughter-in-law. There's no hugs and kisses now. We're told in verse 18, she said no more. She's silent, her mouth is closed, she says nothing. The best she can manage is silence, because Naomi knows it's going to be hard for Ruth if she returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. So when they finally arrive in verse 19, the women of Bethlehem are stirred up in astonishment at Naomi's return. Is this Naomi? They didn't even seem to notice that Naomi came with, with, you know, with friends, if you like. Not a word about the Moabite girl who was tagging along. One commentator, said, one commentator says, there almost seems to have been an unspoken conspiracy, not to mention the Moabites. It was like the elephant in the room that no one was talking about. To be a Moabite, not to mention a widow in Judah, would have been to be marked as an outcast in Judah. So verses 8 and 9, Naomi is trying hard to spare her daughters-in-law the grief that their circumstances would inevitably entail. And then look at the initial reaction to Naomi's first speech on the part of these two Moabite girls. It tells us at the least that these three have become close to one another, very dear to one another. She kissed them, they wept together, and both Ruth, Ruth and Orpah said, no, we will return with you to your people. And then Naomi doubles down on her insistence that they do not. Verse 11, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? This may seem like a terribly strange thing to say, but Naomi's talking about the law that is established in Deuteronomy 25, where there was a requirement a brother-in-law or a new relative to replace the deceased husband in order to provide heirs, to continue the name of the family, and to preserve the family's inheritance in the land of promise. It seems strange to us, but it was a nevertheless a matter of enormous importance in these days. And Naomi's telling her daughters-in-law, there is no possibility of that for you if you come with me. The situation is hopeless, humanly hopeless. Turn back, it's hopeless. And then look carefully at verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So this is the moment that Orpah turned back. She returned, but she didn't return to Bethlehem. She returned, but she didn't return with Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem. She took Naomi's advice. She went back to Moab. She started to follow. She began the journey. And it looked for a little while that Naomi would have two daughters-in-law attached themselves to the people of God in God's land. But Naomi's bleak picture of a hopeless future overcame any sense of loyalty that Orpah had to her mother-in-law and she turned back. She returned all right, but she returned to Moab. And both Ruth and Orpah walked on the same road for a little while. Both responded in the same way to the same circumstances for a season. But whereas Ruth went on, Orpah turned back. And by grace, I trust that all of us here have made the journey from Moab to Bethlehem. It's a picture of salvation. You've heard that the Lord has visited his people with a saviour. And you've said no to sin, turned your backs on the world, and you've come to Jesus Christ. But we know that those who walked beside us, those who seemed to tread the same path as us, and they seemed to shine ever so brightly, they too appeared to have come to trust in the God of mercy who visited his people. But the truth is, when the going got too hard, when the prospects looked too bleak, and the real cost of the journey became plain, they returned. But not to Judah, to Moab. The Lord knows those that are his, but there are many who sadly have made a nominal confession of faith. A skin-deep, superficial profession of Christian faith who have never truly repented, who have never passed from death to life, who have never received the gift of God's salvation. Matthew Mead, the Puritan, said, there are very many in the world that are almost, and yet, but almost Christians. Many that near heaven and yet are never the nearer. Many that are within a little of salvation and yet never enjoy the least salvation. They're within sight of heaven but will never have a sight of God. It's tragic. Personal loyalty, the religion of your family, the tradition of your parents is not enough to break the pull of Moab. The world always looks easier than the hard road ahead that will face anyone who seeks to follow the Lord Jesus. So if you only have a love for tradition, if you only have a love for family, but you have no love for the Saviour, you will surely turn back. Your heart will be like the seed that is sown in the rocky soil in the parable of the sower. It's sprung up, 
But because there was no depth, the sun scorched it and it had no roots and it withered and died. You're the one, Jesus says, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet because you had no root, though you endure for a while in tribulation or persecution, or the road gets too hard, you fall away. We need to search our hearts in light of Orpah's turning back. Do not be like Orpah. Do not be like the rich young man who after speaking with Christ and being confronted by Christ with the cost of discipleship went away sad because he had too much to give up. The cost of following Jesus was just too much. The lure of Moab is strong. Do not be an almost believer. That's the first picture of returning. But then secondly, look at verses 15 to 18, the story of Ruth herself. If Orpah is an almost believer, Ruth becomes a true believer. Orpah turns back and in verse 15, Naomi rounds on Ruth and tells her to do the same. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah's wise, Ruth. If you had any sense, you would follow her. But Ruth replies in words that are rightly amongst the most famous in the Old Testament. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from thee. Ruth has been converted. Ruth has been converted. And Naomi is probably the worst evangelist I've come across. You couldn't hold her up as a modern evangelist at all. She's been brutal in insisting that her daughters-in-law, if they go back to, to Bethlehem, things are going to go from the frying pan into the fire. And in verse 15, she seems determined to send Ruth back specifically to her paganism. Go back to your gods. Go back to your gods. Not all is well in Naomi's heart, but the Lord can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Isn't that wonderful? The fact that any of us are of any use to the kingdom is because the Lord can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Praise God that is so. For I certainly would despair of being much use in his service, I'm sure. But here the Lord clearly uses a crooked stick and he draws a straight line home. And despite Naomi's discouragements, Ruth undergoes a wonderful gospel change. You see this in a number of ways if you attend to the detail of the text. Notice, for example, Ruth echoes the language of God's covenant promises to Israel. Exodus 6, verse 7, God told Israel, I'll take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from Egypt. And here, Ruth turns the promise of God around and says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She's identifying herself with the people of God. She's identifying herself with those whom God has redeemed. Your people are mine, and your God, my God. And Ruth has faced all the discouragements that this wonderful evangelist Naomi had thrown in her path. 
She knows that humanly speaking, there are very few prospects of a brighter future in the Promised Land. She watched her sister-in-law leave for the pastures of home. She's lost everything with no earthly hope of recovery. And one of the only people in the world who knows what it is to walk through it with her has turned back and gone. Ruth knows the road ahead is bleak if she went from Moab all the way to Bethlehem, but she press, presses on. And the only thing that accounts for that, the only thing in the world that, that accounts for that transformation, that determination, <coughs> is that her heart has been changed. Her heart has been changed. She's been saved by grace, and by grace joined to the God of Israel, whose covenant name you notice in verse 17, you see it in capital letters, this Moabite girl takes on her lips the name Yahweh. May Yahweh the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She took the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to be her God. His people, her people. She said, I can't leave you, Naomi, because I cannot leave the God I love. I cling to you, Naomi, because first of all, I'm clinging to him. You see, and that is the difference between an almost believer and a true convert to Christ. The almost believer follows on the path for personal reasons, for personal loyalties, because of the love of a mother-in-law who has lost everything. But in the end, however strong the loyalties are, the almost believer returns. When the hardship of life presses in, the almost believer finds that the familiar comforts of the world is easier than living life amongst the people of God. But the new believer counts the cost. There's no sugar coat in it. The new believer knows that to follow Jesus means to take up his cross. She knows, Ruth knows, Paul knows that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But God had captured her heart. I mean, she cannot but follow and serve him. In John 6, many people after hearing Jesus said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were almost believers. And then the Lord turned to the twelve and said, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him in words that would not have sounded strange on the lips of Ruth the Moabitess, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? The Lord Jesus has the words of eternal life and today he's asking you, those of you who follow him, will you also go away? Will you also turn back? Or will you be like Ruth? Do you take me for your God and my people for your people? Do you recognise with Simon Peter that there is nowhere else to go? However tempting and enticing the world may appear to be, however hard and painful following Jesus may be, there is nowhere else to go because he alone has the words of eternal life. And notice Ruth the Moabitess that that's what she's always called. Whenever she appears in the book of Ruth, the Moabite, 
It's like she never gets out from under that label. She's an outsider. But notice wonderfully that Ruth the Moabite, not Naomi, raised in the land of promise to know the Lord God and his sovereignty and his promises, nor Orpah, the other Moabite girl, but Ruth the Moabite, the outsider, is the one who comes all the way in, embraces the good news and receives the Lord as her God's. That is the glory of the gospel. There is room under the shadow of his wings for outsiders. Isn't that good news? Because that means that there's room for you and there's room for me. There is room for you under the wings of the Almighty. There need be no orpers in this room this afternoon. There's good room for all to come like Ruth. Take the God of Israel for your God as he's offered to us in the gospel in Jesus Christ. So Orpah, the almost believer. Ruth, the true believer. But Naomi is a backslidden believer, thirdly. She knows the Lord. That's evident by her benediction in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. And the word that she uses, deal kindly, is that word hesed, steadfast love, long-suffering love of the Lord. Hesed, it means covenant love, it means mercy. The special mark of the relationship between God and his people. God shows hesed to his children. The New Testament equivalent might be grace. God gives grace to his people. God gives hesed to his people. He binds them himself to them and they to him. And that's what Naomi pronounces on her daughters-in-law as she sends them home. It sounds right, but it rings hollow. Her continual push to push the girls away from God, her outright recommendation to Ruth that the gods of Moab may be in fact better. It tells the story of a heart in dramatic spiritual decline. And if you look at verse 13, we get some, some indication of what drives her spiritual condition. No, my daughters, when they protest at being turned back. No, my daughters. It's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Which is how she reads her circumstances. She believes in the sovereignty of God, all right, but she can no longer accept that the sovereign God is a good God. So she arrives at Bethlehem and the local women rush out to meet her. And look how she responds to their greeting. The women said, is this Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away forward, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The reality we must all face is that there's not a Christian in this world who does not or will not suffer at some point in their lives. Suffering is a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. But oh, how careful we need to be that when suffering comes, it doesn't do in our hearts what it did in Naomi's. It didn't cause a seed of bitterness against God to germinate when it was always God's design not to push us away, but to draw us to him. So Naomi is a heart in despair. She thinks that God is out to get her. She can see providence, but she can't see grace. And all she knows is her hurt and her pain. She thinks that she's innocent and God is unjust. She's complaining about God's severity. 
but she misreads God's hand in her sorrows as we do so very often. This is a woman who's drifted so far from the Lord, but notice as she begins the journey home, God is working in his providence to bring her back to himself. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, the daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, we're told in verse 22. So we've been taught, in the words of William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfold in every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. There is a lesson in that last verse. It's a, it's a lesson that Naomi has not yet fully come to see and learn. But as we look back over the ways that our own hearts have been dealt with by suffering and hard providences, are we not being summoned by Naomi's backslidden heart not to rush to judgment on the Lord who has ordained and ordered our trials, but instead to do what Ruth does, who endured the same suffering, and as she reflect on her losses and her crosses in meekness. We must kiss the hand that afflicts us and say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God is teaching and training us, even in our sorest trials, and he purposes our good through the grief. You see, Orpah was an almost believer. She started out well enough, she did not finish. Ruth clung to the Lord. She was converted. Maybe the Lord is calling you today like he called Ruth. He's calling you to find refuge under the wings of the Almighty. Never turn back to Moab. Turn to the Lord Jesus and find refuge there. And Naomi, a backslidden believer, maybe that's you or someone that you love far away and the Lord is working to bring you home. Be warned in your handling of providence and in your trials and learn, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The book of Ruth is a going away and coming back. And that is a part of the rhythm of scripture. Abraham goes to Egypt and comes back. Jacob goes to Syria and returns. The people of Jerusalem go to Babylon and returned. The prodigal son goes away and returns, Luke 15. The Bible is such a story. The human race went away from God and his great plan of salvation is to bring us back to himself. And at the centre of the plan, the centre the center of eternity is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news that calls us back is something else that God has done in Bethlehem. And not just for those who live there, but for all of us, wherever, whoever we are and however far we are from God. It's a wonderful gospel we have to proclaim. It's a new and infinitely greater gospel than the one Naomi heard. And that turned her thoughts to home. And it's an open invitation to all of us to come home. 
to come home to the God who made us, to come home to the God who loves us, the only one who can meet your deepest need. Come back empty. Come back with only small expectations, if that's all you have. Come back bitter, if you must, but do come back. Come back and return to the Lord God who loves us. We were made for God and our true home is only with him. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.